Well, church family, good morning. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, just delighted to get the opportunity to worship together with you. Uh, my name is Randy, and um, I'll be out in the place called the Fireside Room. It's through these glass doors and to the right. And after services, I'd love to have the opportunity to visit with you and just get to know you and just a little bit of FaceTime. Uh, our elders will be there, and as well as our um, uh, guest services team. So we want you to feel at home just as soon as possible here at, at Windsor Road. We're grateful, grateful that you're here. As you see our walls here, especially if you're new, uh, you'll notice that we've been studying in our teaching time through the Old Testament book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus 15, 13 gives a one-verse summary of the entire book. Exodus 15, 13. In your steadfast love, you have led the people you have redeemed. By your strength, you have guided them to your holy abode. That's Exodus. Exodus is about one word, and our songs alluded to it a little earlier. It's about the word freedom. Freedom. In Exodus, God frees Israel from oppression, from slavery, from Pharaoh, from false gods. But that's only half of it. Exodus is not just about freedom from, but about freedom for. Freedom for worship. Freedom for flourishing. Freedom for growth, for joy. So we're not made to be free from all constraints. Slaves to nothing or no one but our own whims. Everybody serves somebody. And so Exodus is more than just freedom from an old master. But Exodus is about freedom for delighting in a new, better lovelier, splendid, more powerful king. Exodus, freedom. And how do freed people stay free? How do freed people stay free? By delighting in the word of the Lord. And that leads us to our series within a series, the Ten Commandments. Given not so that God's people would earn their way to heaven, but given to help freed people stay free. And this morning, we are going to consider the sixth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not kill unlawfully. You shall not kill unlawfully. Those of you who received my Friday email know that I said, does this even need to be said? Shouldn't it be obvious? And then 50 were gunned down in two mosques at Christ Church of all cities, New Zealand. And then I started looking at the Chicago Tribune because it made me wonder, well, if 50 were gunned down at Christ Church in New Zealand, how many homicides have occurred just this year in Chicago? 54. 54. 
And there's been 49 million babies aborted since 1973. And that's just from 1973 to uh, 2008, according to the Guttmacher Institute. And um, over 70% of the reasons for those 49 million abortions, according to the Guttmacher Institute, um, I don't feel like I've got enough money to support the child. I don't want the child. I don't want the child yet. Uh, and the parents objected uh, and urged the mother to abort the baby. And, and the rare and understandable exception of ectopic pregnancies were not at the top of the list. Um, and according to the Guttmacher Institute, um, one in four women under the age of 45 in the United States have had an abortion. And my hunch is, is that we've got stories here. And I want you to know, I don't have a judgmental bone in my body. But I want you to know, we live in a culture of death. We do. So yes, yes, we need the sixth commandment. You shall not kill unlawfully. I wonder what Moses thought when he first heard God speak the words of the sixth commandment. Did he recall that day? It had been over 40 years but it may as well have been yesterday. Moses, the prince of Egypt, went out to see his Hebrew people bake in slavery under the hot Egyptian sun, and he hears a scream, and he sees a fellow Hebrew curled up in a self-protective fetal position, trying to escape the brutal whip of an Egyptian taskmaster, and something in Moses snapped. We can read about it in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And then verse 12. Verse 12 is perhaps the quintessential verse on premeditation. Verse 12. And he looked this way and that and seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And the scripture says Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Huh. And Moses fled, didn't he? He left Egypt and sought asylum in the desert of Midian. He found refuge in Jethro's family. And there he met the God of this universe and discovered God's calling for him was not to take lives, but to save lives. 
So this commandment is personal to Moses, who learned that life is sacred. And that's what the sixth commandment says. God insists that human life is sacred. I want to free you, God says, from a culture of death. No pharaoh may commit ethnic cleansing by drowning Hebrew baby boys. And no prince may appoint himself as a vigilante, even at gross injustice. The sixth commandment says, you shall not kill unlawfully. So let's probe this commandment this morning. Now, as I was looking at this message, especially in comparison to our other messages on the Ten Commandments, um, there are many scripture references that we'll be looking at this morning. And this is to be expected for something as important as this. What I want to do is organize... uh, our teaching time under three familiar questions to you. What? What does the commandment actually say? And then I want to talk about the so what, the significance of the sixth commandment. And then the third question is, how does Jesus help us clarify the meaning of the sixth commandment? So what, so what, Jesus. That's where we're going, all right? First, the what, the sixth commandment prohibits the unlawful taking of human life. Uh, So the moment I say unlawful, uh, the implication is lawful, right? And that's what can be confusing about our translations. There are some translations that say, you shall not kill. The word there actually is rather broad. And then other translations say, you shall not murder. And actually that's Narrow. So which is it? Well, the word is ratzach, which means it's in the Hebrew. The Old Testament comes to us by way of the Hebrew language. It's a rare word. And according to Brevard Childs, a a Hebrew scholar, it means illegal killing or unlawful killing. Uh, This word is not used for capital punishment or warfare. Here it means the unauthorized or unlawful taking of human life. And by way of preview in this section... Let me just say at the outset that there are four types of unlawful um, killings that we'll see here shortly. Cold-blooded, hot-blooded, negligent, accidental. Cold-blooded, hot-blooded, negligent, accidental. And so the lawful uh, categories would be self-defense, capital punishment, and just warfare, just warfare. So let's consider the unlawful first. The unlawful types of killing in Scripture. All of what I'm about to talk about are unlawful, uh, but the punishment differs. And what I want you to remember, church family, as we're looking through these verses, is that the Bible shows careful, critical thinking about intent and motive. So there's unlawful, premeditated murder, premeditated murder, Uh, whether New Zealand or Chicago, Las Vegas or Sandy Hook, calculated, cold-blooded taking of human life, Cain against Abel, and the key phrase of premeditation is in Deuteronomy 19.11, Deuteronomy 19.11, It says, if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, and lies in wait for him, that signals premeditation. That's unlawful. Cold-blooded. Then there's hot-blooded. 
hot-blooded homicide. That's a crime of passion. That is an intentional act, but an accidental result. And if you will just take your Bible and uh, turn the page to Exodus 21 and look at verses 18 to 22. So what What's happening here is we have the Ten Commandments, and then in Exodus chapters 21 and 22 and 23 and uh, part of 24, we have scenarios by which the commandments apply. So in Exodus 21, 18 to 22, we read about a heated quarrel that resulted in a fist fight. So the combatants woke up that morning. They weren't planning on hurting one another, but something happened throughout the course of the day. There was a heated quarrel. There was a fist fight. Person A hit person B, and someone died. Your neighbor, your servant, a pregnant woman, an unborn baby. Uh, so it was intentional in that it occurred in the heat of the moment. You were so mad you just hit that person, but it wasn't premeditated, okay? That's, that's hot-blooded. Both cold-blooded and hot-blooded acts of killing were considered capital crimes according to Scripture. Exodus 21, 23. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. So the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit capital punishment. The purpose of capital punishment is punishment. To punish the guilty. And it assumes that the offender is rationally and morally responsible. The scripture assumes that the offender knows better and therefore deserves it. Um, some reason that capital punishment makes the state no better than a criminal, but the Bible does not follow that logic. Uh, Alistair Begg put it this way. The idea that if two actions have the same result, they are then morally equivalent is flawed reasoning. Is repossession of property in payment of debt the same as auto theft? Are kidnapping and imprisonment the same since both involve being detained against one's will? Is killing in self-defense the same as capital murder since both end in the taking of life? In 1995, Timothy McVeigh murdered 168 people in the Oklahoma City bombing. His crime was so horrible that he forfeited his right to life, even behind bars. And while his death was a just act of punishment, there should never ever be any joy in seeing the state put anyone to death. Christians have no business tailgating outside death row. Cold-blooded murder hot-blooded murder. The third type that the scripture calls unlawful is negligent homicide. Negligent homicide. Keep looking at Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 and 29. And we see this scenario about a neighbor with an ox. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. So, so if the pastor comes over to your house and your ox gores the pastor, okay, you know, you've got to bury the pastor, you've got to put down the ox, but you're not liable. Unless, verse 29, 
unless your ox has been accustomed to gore in the past. And you've been warned time and time and time again, but you've not heeded the warning. All right? Then if the ox kills the man, or, and you say, well, how many times will that be? I don't know how many times that would be. Right? How many times does it take? It's your pastor. <laughs> but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not been kept in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and the owner shall be put to death. Wow. Okay. And then there's another case. Uh, this is, a, keep reading in Exodus chapter 22. There's a scenario regarding a burglary. So if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, that's self-defense. Uh, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt. For him. So even, see, so even precautions need to be taken when there's a burglar in the house, you see? Oh, and did you know there are building codes in the Bible? In Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, not Exodus, but Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, it says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet on your roof. That's just kind of a small little wall, right? that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Isn't that interesting? So you see how the Scripture really thinks critically about intentional versus unintentional. If it's intentional, was it premeditated or not? If it's unintentional, was there a habitual history of willful neglect? What were the circumstances? Even the unintentional, has this, has this been habitual? Has the owner been warned? And, and what about the time of day? When did this occur, you see? Well, the fourth type is accidental. Accidental deaths. And um, we read about this in Deuteronomy 19, verse 5. Deuteronomy 19, verse 5. It says, When someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head, the head of the axe, slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor. So it's his neighbor, his friend, or maybe it's a pastor who's fixated on death case scenarios, I don't know, strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities of refuge and live. So it's an accident. There was, there was no intentionality. There was no premeditation. It, hey, accidents happen. Accidents happen. And if that should happen, the scripture says he may flee to one of these cities. Cities, I've got in the brackets, of refuge. Let's talk about that for a minute. In the land of promise, God instructed Israel to build up to six designated cities of asylum or cities of refuge for unintentional killings. And, and they were cities. They were not prisons. They were probationary municipalities for manslayers to remain protected from vengeance until the death of the high priest. And then at the death of the high priest, they could go back home. 
So the cities of refuge, just think about the wisdom of God here. So the cities of refuge acknowledge the seriousness of, of accidental manslaughter and at the same time, they provide protection from the convicted from vigilantism. So these scenarios give evidence of the Bible's critical thinking about justice and mercy. The Bible's careful discrimination uh, regarding motive and intent. Surely we can see that when, human, when humans take the life of another human, that's a serious matter. And why? Why? Well, that's question number two, right? Why is it so serious? Genesis 9, 5 and 6 tell us why. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That's why. That's why God says, I require a reckoning. If an animal kills a human being, God will hold the animal accountable. Why? Because human life is sacred. Yeah, but you say, well, but an animal is just being an animal. Yeah, I understand that, but, but don't miss the point here. If God holds animals accountable for doing instinctive things, how much more humans? Humans alone bear the image of God. When we violate that, we are shredding God's picture. God says, an assault on my image is an assault on me. Because we're made to mirror his being. And that's what sets us apart from the animal world. Listen to me, church family. Why is your dog happier than you? I can tell you why. Because your dog lives for your approval. That's why. That's why when you pat your dog's head, what happens to his tail? Yeah. Yeah. Why is your cat more content and, and well-adjusted? Why? Because a cat's life is a quest for coziness. That's why. That's why. Why do we want more love than we can get? Why are our desires insatiable? Why do we fear death so much? Animal, animals fear pain, but they don't fear death. Why? Because we're unique. That's why. We're made in God's image. Our personalities hunger for love. Our rational minds hunger for knowledge. Our creative spirits hunger for beauty. Our eternal souls hunger to last. We are at our best when we mirror and reflect the splendor of God. And when we turn the mirror of our lives to darkness, well, we're still a mirror. So it reflects darkness. When you turn to nothing, it reflects nothing. Why did those parents pay all that money for a fixer to put their kids in an elite school? Why? Because they were pointing their mirrors in the wrong place. But when you turn it to the sun, 
Oh, you're made for that. You're, you, we're made to reflect the face of God. And if you don't accept that you've been made in God's image, you won't understand why you're not happy. We've been created to be image bearers of the Almighty. Life matters because life's ultimate purpose is in proclaiming what the Lord has done. And when homicide happens, intentional or not, someone has been deprived. Children deprived of parents, wives without husbands, husbands, wives, parents without children, taking lives deprives. But life is not an end in itself. Being alive is a means to an end. And the ultimate value of life is life's ultimate purpose. And the psalmist tells us that in Psalm 118, verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's why you're on this earth. That's why we're here. And when human life is taken, God is the first victim. He's the one deprived. Not just your spouse or your children or your parents. And no one has the right to end that which exists for the glory of God. Especially when our lives belong to God. Hey, listen, people may disagree about the government's right to tell us what to do with our bodies. But there should be no disagreement about God's right. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And, and, so, and so with that old Jewish prayer, we can pray, therefore shall our bodily organs, which you have prepared for us, and the spirit and the breath which you breathed into our nostrils and the tongue that you have placed in our mouth, behold, they shall magnify and adore and praise and exalt and lift up and fear and sanctify and declare before the kings, the king, your name, O God. For every mouth will confess you. Every tongue shall praise you. Every internal organ shall sing your name. As it is written, all my bones shall say, Yahweh, who is like you. Amen. No one but God has the right to unlawfully cut our day short. Now I confess to you, I was feeling pretty self-satisfied at this point in my preparation process. I was. I thought to myself, well, pff, this is easy. This is easy. My, my last name is not Corleone. Corleone, Michael Corleone, the godfather. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nobody's last name is Corleone. We're not a congregation of killers. I don't need a city of refuge. This is easy. And then I remembered something Jesus said. Hmm. You remember? Do you remember something Jesus said? 
He said it in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So far, so good. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Um, there's an old attorney in the last century named Clarence Darrow who once said, I've never killed anyone, but I have read some obituary notices with great satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you too. Yeah. Well, that, see, that's the attitude that Jesus once eradicated. Hmm. He tells me, Randy, in no uncertain terms, there is more than one way for you to murder. And so he informs those of us who live in nice neighborhoods, who work for nice companies, who attend nice churches with really nice pastors, <laughs> that there is more than one way to murder. There are murderers in our midst. Murder by malice. And surely the Apostle John was remembering the Sermon on the Mount when he said in 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Author Anne Lamott once said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Can you hear what Jesus is saying? He says physical murder usurps God's right to number another person's days. Mental murder usurps God's right to measure another person's worth. And we wouldn't think of lifting a gun or a knife, but we destroy by hateful attitudes and verbal violence. And Jesus condemns the out-of-control resentment that knots our stomachs and reddens our faces and triggers burning within. When we engage in mental murder, we're saying that God's opinion of that person doesn't count, and no one has that right. No one. We don't. We don't have the right to wish upon another pain, injury, or distress. And Jesus says there's little difference between a dripping knife and juicy gossip, between bullets and verbal abuse. James chapter 3, verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so how do, how do you feel about those who have hurt you or inconvenienced you or disappointed you or your family or your spouse or your job do you, do you find it easy to lose your temper when things don't go your way are you carrying a chip on your shoulder is your anger keeping you from reconciling those who have hurt you Jesus insists that we, that we go beyond treating our neighbor with the worst, he demands that we give them the best. Jesus says, you're not allowed to kill your enemy. Instead, you love your enemy to death. Kill your enemy with love until your enemy dies and is reborn your neighbor. Jesus clarifies this commandment by discussing murder by malice and 
murder by neglect. Do you recall the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus says two leading religious clergy were on their way to worship. They saw a man robbed and left for dead on the road. And three times the parable says they saw. But that's all they did. But then a Samaritan, an historic racial enemy, acted like Christ and got involved. A lot of religious killings occur not by malice but by neglect. Christ says, I know you didn't strike me with a weapon. I know you didn't slash me with gossip, but you didn't help me. When, Lord? Oh, you, you, you hear what he's going to say, right? In Matthew 25, 42 and 43. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Jesus assures us that, that whatever we do to the least of these, to the poor, to the homeless, to the sick, it's as if we've done it to him. And incidentally, this is why we go on missions trips. This is why we just sent a team on a medical missions trip. This is why we're going to Peru. This is why we're going to Montana, the Dominican Republic. This is why we have an active benevolence and food pantry ministry. This is why we have partnerships with Salt and Light. Jeremiah 22.16 says, He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. So if we're going to keep the sacred sixth commandment, we're going to have to go beyond the act of avoiding physical murder. Because as it stands right now, I mean, my righteousness is on par with the Pharisees. And Jesus says, that's just not going to cut it. Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe I should rethink that statement about my need for a city of refuge. Because by Christ's standards, I need a city of refuge. What about you? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are only sinners here at Windsor Road Christian Church, and the pastor is a sinner too. But this is, this is where really bad news gets better. Really, it can only get better from here. Do you know in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it specifically said special roads were to be built to the cities of refuge. Special roads. Not just find it on your own, but roads were to be built so that people could find those cities. Furthermore, the rabbis taught that signs had to be posted along these roads. Signs that read, Refuge, refuge, clearly marked out, showing the way. Oh, and another thing. The gates of the cities of refuge, they were to always be kept unlocked. Always. Which wasn't normal for ancient towns. Because at night, the cities were closed. The gates were locked. 
but the doors of the cities of refuge were always open 24-7. So if someone at any time, day or night, accidentally killed a fellow and had to flee, that person could get there and find refuge. Oh, and one more thing. The cities were meant for Israelite and non-Israelite. Anyone from any nation, any tribe, anywhere. Don't you see? These cities point to the greatest refuge that we can find from the greatest threat that we could ever face. They point us to the refuge of the cross of Christ, our shelter from the wrath of God. Jesus, our high priest, gave himself so that we can be free. And here's the beautiful wisdom of the gospel. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the sending of his Holy Spirit upon us has transformed us to the degree that we're not just a crowd. In God's eyes, we're not just an audience. Christ's Holy Spirit has transformed us. This church, Windsor Road Christian Church, into a city of refuge, always ready to share the gospel, always ready to share the hope that we have in Christ. And our gates are always unlocked. The Lord Jesus Christ said, come unto me, so that anybody at any time in any place can come and find him if you are willing and you are ready to receive the Holy One. And there in his city of refuge, all the nations are welcome here. That's why this matters. Amen.